Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. is so good to be back. Last week I spent uh, the weekend at a wedding for my cousin and it was a wonderful time. I got to see family, people who I had not seen in some time and I really enjoyed it. I got to admit though there was a sense of uh, impending doom maybe is the wrong phrase, maybe it's a little strong. Anxiety about coming back here for two reasons. One, obviously it's you're my family. I can't wait to be here. Sundays are important to me. I love being with you guys. I love interacting with you and this is the place that I want to be in any given week but I'm not going to lie. The traffic in Gary is no joke, okay? On the way back to Chicago through that southern part, it's rough. And so my anxiety about coming back to traffic and busyness and everything that goes with it. And so either way, the Lord brought me here. This is where the Lord has placed me. This is where my family is, you guys, and this is where I want to be. So I'm glad to be back. In my work in recovery, in my interacting with people, in my own life even, there are often stories of relapse. It's not uncommon to hear of people who have come out of a lifestyle of addiction, whether that be to drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever, you can fill in the blank, there's always going to be something. They come for recovery broken people, they admit their need, they they come to a, a place where they realize they can no longer go on living the way they are. They, the consequences of the reactions have grown so great that they just no longer want to move forward. They come, and quickly, we begin to see a change. We begin to see a light in their eyes again. They realize that, wow, there's something to this not making more mistakes that does something for your life. You start building victory upon victory. They, uh, they find joy again. They notice things they hadn't noticed. They mend relationships that had been broken as a result of their addiction. But inevitably, it seems, at some point, the pink cloud, as it were, wears off. There comes a place where reality hits again, and they begin to grow ungrateful. And more scary, they begin to grow complacent. Soon they stop doing the things that led them to find that recovery. They stop attending meetings, or they stop sharing what's really going on honestly. They stop doing all of the spiritual and behavioral practices in their life that brought them this freedom. They took their blessings of sobriety for granted and they grew complacent in their recovery. I use it as an example, but though we're not all addicts or alcoholics or compulsive shoppers or eaters or swearers or priders or self-righteousers or anything-ers, by virtue of our sin nature, we're all prone to addiction to idols in some way. We tend to think about what pleases us, we do whatever we want, we relate to others in self-centered ways, and we love to place ourselves at the center of our own universe. Just take a moment to get honest with yourself if you doubt that to be true, and I think that the people around you would probably help you adjust your mindset as well if you ever ask them. Caution, don't do that. We mustn't forget the consequences 
of our idolatry, nor the blessings of God's deliverance from them. Because this is something that we tend to do. You see, we're constantly drawn back into this cycle that we see in the book of Judges and in the book in the account of Gideon because of our sin nature. In some ways, this is truly inevitable. It's part and parcel of being a broken human being here on earth. But by God's grace, we can change this pattern so that we no longer so that we live longer in freedom and less time in consequences. In other words, what we're seeking to do as we follow the Lord and we grow more like Christ is that our threshold for tolerating pain goes down. I thought someone was playing me off stage already. I felt like I was at the Oscars. So our tolerance, our threshold for the pain we can tolerate goes down as we walk with the Lord longer. It should be a truth, an axiom in our life that the older you get, the more you recognize your sin. So the phrase or the sound, tisk tisk, out of somebody who is, let's say, mature in his walk or her walk with the Lord is a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense. The more you walk with the Lord, the more you realize your own sinfulness. So not only does our tolerance for pain go down, but also our sensitivity, the Lord's conviction goes up. When Jesus stood and kneeled and drew on the ground when they wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery, it says that the oldest people left first when he asked, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. This sense of knowing what we've been saved from, remembering what we've been saved from, is essential to our walk with the Lord. If we don't learn this, if we don't break the cycle, we can expect a life of constant crisis. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have brief glimpses of lucidity and moments of joy and happiness, and then suddenly the bottom falls out. Suddenly, what you've been doing is that had in the past gotten you something good and pleasurable has now proven itself to be nothing but consequences, negative ones. And this is something we all, regardless of how long we've walked with the Lord or how well we think we know him, need to grapple with. This is a sin nature issue. This is a human nature issue. Today is our last message in uh, the story of Gideon. So we're in Judges 8, 28 through 35. If you have your Bibles, please open them up uh, with me. Now, that does not mean that this is the end of the story. Last week, Aaron explained that in chapter 9, a passage we're not going to go over, we see some of the consequences uh, the ripple effect of Gideon's life and how the story sort of ends, or should I say continues, the next chapter. Gideon sought to depend upon himself and to control his situation. He created this, yeah, this ephod. And the whole nation of Israel and even his family prostituted themselves to it. They worshipped it as an idol, even to the next generation and beyond. So let's read. Uh, I'll read the passage through, and then we'll talk about four lessons that we need to get from this. If we are not going to allow the series on Gideon, this account of Gideon, to fall flat in our hearts, this is a very important message. 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jerubal, which is, we know Gideon, this is the name, he who contends with Baal. Jerubal, son of Joash, went home, back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. Uh-oh. That's many minus one too many. His concubine, uh-oh, 
who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. And we talked about this last week, Abimelech meaning my father is king, might give us a glimpse into what was Gideon's mindset at the end of his life, how he viewed himself. Gideon's son of Joash died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. But no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berit as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is, Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Tragic ending. Tragic ending. And we do well to pay attention to what happened, to look at the pattern of their falling back into this cycle of disobedience. What we see here in the book of Gideon, writ small, is in throughout the book of Judges, writ large, and even more so throughout the story of the Bible. Throughout God's word to us, we see again and again these sort of oscillations between trusting in the Lord, seeking his face, living in obedience, and receiving the blessings of living a life that God has ordained for us. On the other hand, we see that time and time again, I don't know about you, but I know in my life, I forego those blessings because I forget. And I end up having negative consequences and terrible pain, the Lord's discipline. Where I ask myself, why did I forget? Why did I forget? So there are four things that we need to learn. First, we need to focus on God and not people. When we focus on people, we create cults of personality. Years ago, I belonged to a church when we were growing up. My family went there, and the pastor was an amazing person, and everybody loved her. She left, the church fell apart. Everybody was focused on her and how great of a person she was because she's amazing. How great of a personality, her bedside manner, the way she interacted with people, and everything became about that person instead of about the God she was proclaiming. It's a tragedy to me when I think, because sometimes I think about this, if I were to leave or if one of the more, if someone important or special or beloved here at the church left, what would happen to the rest of us? Would we leave? And why? Are we placing our trust, our respect, and our love in a person in our congregation, in our family, in our spiritual life, instead of looking to the God that they proclaim, the God that they are reflecting to us? Some of us, we follow different preachers, different leaders, different teachers, different mentors. We uh, watch certain people that God uses to bless and edify us. However, it is essential that we focus on God, specifically the word of God and not them. When I got out of prison, I called the man who basically led me to the Lord. You know my story, I think most of you. I asked for books in prison. He dropped off books, or he asked me if I wanted books. I thought they were going to be like John Grisham novels. He was the chaplain. Big mistake. He dropped off a bag of books that included John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine, Reformed Burkhoff, Reformed Theology, and I was like, what is this? But he had a way, and God told him what to do. And not long after, I went from being an atheist to a believer in the Lord. But I never made Bert the person, the object of my worship. In fact, he didn't either. I called him when I got out of prison. He was very elderly. He's with the Lord now. And I just said, thank you. You changed my life. He said, God did it. 
I said, I know God did it, but you brought me books. God made me do it. I know, but you picked the books. God picked the books. Everything. He, it was almost frustrating. Just let me love you. You know what I mean? He, every time he would redirect it back to God because he knew if I made him the big show, God necessarily would be second, which is exactly what God warns us in the first commandment. You see, people cannot change us. Someone in here needs to hear that. People cannot change us. We find the right partner. We find the right friend. We find the right preacher, the right church, the right you name it. It cannot change us. Only the power of God working through our repentance and choice can change us. More importantly, we cannot change people. This is going to be a painful pill for some of us to swallow. You are not as important as you think you are in the lives of the people around you. We try to wrestle people into a path of obedience with the Lord, forgetting that they are on their own track. That God is God, God works through them, God is doing whatever God has to do to do whatever he chooses to do with them. Yet somehow we make it about us, don't we? We see our kids and insist if we don't make it happen this way, they're going to go off and be psychopaths. The friend who calls and complains nonstop, what do we do? We get frustrated and resentful when they don't listen to our advice, even though they ask for it. What about when I do counseling with some of you guys come in? You tell me your whole story. Well, what do you want me to do? This is what you do. You don't do it. The truth is, is I wouldn't do it if I came for advice from me. Because I have a sinful heart, and ultimately it's my choice and God working through his grace that's going to bring me to a place of change. It's all about God. Everything is about God. When I explain to people about what it's like and how do we understand where God starts and we end, I say it like this. Everything good in our life? God. Everything bad? Us. Simple. Simple. Only God can make lasting change and cause the deep transformation in the heart, not just behavioral change. We see what happens. Forty years later, Gideon dies. As soon as he's dead, they go right back. There needs to be deep transformation necessary to fall, so we don't fall back into our old patterns. I mean, think about this. We've spent our whole lives creating these patterns. We think that one day we're just going to flip them around and we're suddenly going to be gone. Oftentimes, the amount of time it took to get into the bind that we find ourselves in, or into the attitude, or into the response, it's going to take that much time to work our way out. Anyone we look to for deliverance in this world is dealing with the same stuff we are. <laughs> I'm dealing with the same stuff you are. People are sinful. Look at Gideon's life. Golden ephod. He makes an object of worship. Maybe he didn't intend it, but it certainly feels like that. And then the whole nation, the nation that God used him to deliver, falls back into idolatry. His concubine, for those of you who don't know what a concubine is, that's a side piece in today's vernacular. Okay? There was a great emphasis placed during this time on growing the largest family possible. That fam, large families were a sign of God's blessing. Isn't it interesting how we would say, well, we'll take it upon myself to show that blessing. And we'll create an enormous family. And I will have a dynasty, a whole posse to protect me should I be threatened. Many wives. It seems in the scripture that, Bible, or that, that, that God at times doesn't outright condemn polygamy. It is not God's ideal. And I believe the Bible clearly says it's against God's 
purpose of your life. That we are to be people of one wife, one husband. That we have eyes only for our spouse. In any case, 70 is too many. Oh my gosh. I mean, clearly there's something wrong here. What was Gideon's priority? Was he trying to prevent an invasion by creating his own personal army, a dynasty? Was he trying to portray wealth? Or maybe the most obvious answer, he just likes sex. I'm serious. 70 wives is indicative of something happening in this person's heart. And we take, we're wise to take note of that. If you're not careful, your loyalty to God is easily eclipsed by your loyalty to man. And this too is idolatry. When your hope in man fails, it threatens your hope in God. Let me give you an example. People who are, come out of the Catholic Church and are worshiping with us today know, and all of us hear it on news all the time, there are abuses that occurred in the Catholic Church. There are now people who belonged, who were in the Catholic Church, who worship the Lord, who now want nothing to do with them. And it's beyond just going to a different church. They walk away from the Lord. The distrust they find in the leadership of that church is played out in their life by trusting no one else. We do this. How about megachurch pastors? I could name 50 of them. Something about getting puffed up and getting successful does something. Look at Gideon. Ravi Zacharias. James McDonald. Bill Hybels. These are men just like me and you. These are sinful men just like me and you who did not take heed of the warning laid out here in this account of Gideon. And we are not immune to it. We are not exempted from this because this is the heart we inherited. More than that, this is the life we really love. We really love. Notice that the Israelites, that's what they did in response to their focus on Gideon. They turned to a different God. Gideon goes, they don't go, well, let's look who see God raises up next. They go to a different God altogether. This is amazing to me. Baal means Lord. Okay, there's a little catch in the throat when you say this word. So we say in English, Baal. Okay, a little side note here. In Hebrew, it's Baal but it sounds like we're all in something out of our throat, so we don't say it like that. But, Baal, okay? More importantly is the word next to it, bereth, okay? In modern Hebrew, it's pronounced berit. That's how you hear me say it. A berit is a covenant. This is the God of the covenant. I want you to let that sink in. What the Jews are doing here is they're saying, the God who rescued us out of Egypt who parted the Red Sea, who sustained us for 40 years, who provided food for us in the desert, protected us from everything. As long as we abided by his covenant, we reject and we look to this God, Baal Beri, the Lord of the covenant. It's like a divorce. The marriage of Israel with God was severed. They said, we reject you and we choose this bride instead. Which is exactly what we do when we've succumbed to our idolatry. When we look to other saviors. First lesson, don't focus on people. Focus on God. Focus on God. Second, fight your complacency. Fight your complacency. 
What is complacency? I understand it as a loss of priority, a lulling to sleep, a loss of a sense of urgency. It's a weakening of those crisis feelings that get us to a place of repentance and calling out to the Lord. When we stop intentionally seeking after God, we will fall into complacency. There's no such thing as coasting in the spiritual life. Lane and I, we were traveling not that long ago. We were at O'Hare, and you guys who've been there know that they have the walking sidewalks. Okay, I always feel bad getting on them because I'm the guy that's got like one little carry-on bag, and there's this guy who's like virtue signaling with his big bags walking next to me like he's all fit and in shape and stuff. I just want to stand there. It's early in the morning. Last time we were on there, there was a group of kids on the other side running the opposite direction. You know what I'm talking about. We all did it, trying to run up the escalator that's going down. They're trying to run across the sidewalk against the grain. Of course, people are trying to get out of the way. They're running through. But this is a picture of our spiritual life. Our sin nature is such that it will always be pulling us back if we allow it. We will go the easier, softer way. We will go towards what feels good. We will go towards what makes us happy, what satiates our hunger, no matter what that is. It's always a pull back to self. When we stop seeking intentionally after the things of God and we stop walking, we're not paused. We're moving back. We're moving back. Some of you are standing on the conveyor belt going back. Some of you are walking as little as possible to maintain your place. It's God's will for you that by his grace and his power, not your own, that you run. Run. Think of everything beautiful, blessed, good, awesome. Everything you've ever wanted in life is found in the hand of the Lord. At his hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Run to him. Run to him. Do not succumb to your spiritual apathy. Run. You see that people forget. We forget. We believe the lie that we can control our own lives and surroundings, and that motivates us to reject God as soon as we are delivered again. We say to ourselves, I can sin better next time. We say, not only that, I'm smarter. Now I know how to sin and get away with it. In other words, bypass the consequences of our actions. But God loves us too much to let us off scot-free. God allows us to feel the consequences of our actions. He gives us over to what we want to do. And the natural consequence of those things are pain. But we forget. We forget the pain of the last attack or period of bondage. We think about other things. And this makes us take our minds off of God. You see, we have finite spiritual, emotional, and cognitive resources. We cannot be in two places at one time. It says in the scripture that you either love God, you can't serve two masters. You love God or you love money. It's very hard, I would say impossible, to be devoted to two masters. Because of our finite ability, we'll focus on God for a moment and turn to focus on other things. And those things lull us and call us Yet there are places of pain and death. We try to find ways of salvation and deliverance without any responsibility and without any of the consequences. It's like, yes, I could go to God, and I do believe in some sense that God will bless me and give me what I'm looking for, but I, it's not going to give me a bigger house, a better car, a better family, 
It's not going to give me as many girlfriends or boyfriends as I want, the perfect husband. It's not going to give me anything that I'm looking to for deliverance. Only God. Parents and grandparents, when we forget, the next generation forgets. 40 years of peace. As soon as he's gone, everyone turns. The next generation did not perpetuate it, but immediately went back. They lost what's called collective memory. They lost what it means as a society to trust in the Lord. So Gideon saw God's firsthand intervention with just 300 of his men, defeating 130,000 Midianites. Gideon's children, who may have been alive at the time, see it as well. In fact, they were because he wanted him to kill the kings, remember? His children saw the deliverance of the Lord. It's their children. It's their children. Grandparents, your grandkids are where the fight is, not your kids. Your grandkids is where the fight is. As a church, our fight is in the middle school, the fifth grade, the fourth grade. Children's, we're going to do a missions conference on children's ministry this year because children's missions is essential to going forward. If we want to get ahead of what's happening in our society today, we can't focus on people who are already grown up and made their worldview. We need people who that we are moldable. These are the ones we need to focus on, and God tells us again and again, yet we do our own thing. We need to focus on the kids. So how do we fight complacency? We make the threat of negative consequences real in our life. In other words, when God says that there's going to be negative consequences, we believe him. We believe him. We might tell ourselves subtly, I don't say that we do this intentionally, but we say, it won't happen to me. Let me reassure you of something. It can always happen to you. More than that, you can always do it. Given the right circumstances, the right situation, we are all capable of anything. This is an essential truth, not about who you are, but about who we are as human beings. We are all capable of rejecting God and going to the most dark, dangerous, terrible places. And none of us are exempt. Remember that God is true to his word, both to his blessing and for his discipline. So when God says, come to me and I will bless you, believe him, run to him and receive that blessing. He's promising it to you. Why would you not? Why do I not? And when he threatens you, when he says, there are consequences for your actions. And because I love you, I will not insulate you from those consequences. Believe him. Run away. Run away. Surround yourself with people that will cultivate the sense of gravitas, of what it means to be seeking after the Lord, and not those that will pull you down. I am not saying get rid of your unbelieving friends. That is very far. What I'm saying is get rid of people in your life who are not going to support and nurture your walk towards the Lord. Because I assure you there are brothers and sisters in your life, from this church, from the church, whatever, that are not good for you, are not good for you. Consider who's in your life and how are they helping, that, helping you walk towards the Lord. And further, how are you helping them? How are you helping them? Complacency can be motivated by reservations. We don't sell out to God because we're holding something back. If I really sold out to God, that means I'm going to have to give up. I'm hoping the Lord all gave you your thing right there. The thing that you don't want to let go of. We can give 99 things to the Lord and say, Lord, I've given all this up for you. And the only one that matters is that 100th in your back pocket. 
that you're holding on to. 99, that was just priming. Priming for the real one. That's the one. That's the one. What condition are you placing on God? If he gives you what you want, if he protects you from suffering, if he makes your life easier, maybe if he answers my prayers in the way I want him to answer my prayers, then I will actually follow after the Lord with everything. Shedding every weight in the sin that so easily besets us. Only that. Let it not be. Three, forego your idols. Sounds easy. It's what we've been talking about. Forego your idols. But remember the true nature of the crisis. The true nature of the crisis was not the Midianite invasion nor their taking of their food, Israelites' food. The nature of the crisis was Israel's rejection of God. The Midianites were a consequence of that rejection. Focus on core issues. When you're looking at your life and you're seeing consequences left and right, ask yourself, what am I doing? What am I believing? What am I worshiping? That is creating these consequences. Let me give you something of an example like that. I work with people frequently who have loved ones who are in addiction, struggling through addiction. And oftentimes I will get a phone call from somebody who is distraught about their loved one who is using or abusing drugs or living a lifestyle of whatever. What do I do? My answer is frequently something like, don't help them in any way. Cut them off. Doesn't mean cut them off relationally. It means do not contribute to their addiction. Do their laundry, it frees up time for them to do bad things. Put gas in their car, it frees up money for them to do, right? One of the biggest dangers that I have found throughout my entire work in this area, the most, the biggest contributor, I should say, to ongoing addiction are moms. Moms. The reason they're the biggest contributor to addiction is because it's a very gray area, teasing out where someone's responsib else's responsibility begins and where my helping is hurting. So this whole gray area, right? When you begin to talk to people, moms in particular, but certainly fathers too, when you begin to talk to people, you realize that their heart is really, in some ways, it's going to be hard, not motivated by love of their kid. It's a desire to help which puts an image in their head about their identity. Let me say it in another less nuanced way. A Messiah complex. Okay. I went to counseling one time. And I sat there, Christian counselor, we were all talking, thought this is great. Finally, someone's going to understand my plight inside with me. That's what I wanted. I said, oh, you have a Messiah complex. And I said, I'm never going back to this man again in my life. He's the worst counselor I have ever heard. I got in my car, I drove away, all mad, resentful. And then it was like an earworm. Messiah complex, Messiah complex. Kept digging its way into my brain. He was right. In some ways, we all struggle with this. Caregivers, moms, parents, this is often the very action, the attitude that prevents our loved ones from finding the Lord. We insulate them from consequences because we idolize something that it's bringing us to help them. It's serious. You may not say that you have idols, but your sin nature says otherwise. And maybe your idol is lying. I've said that before. We each have idols that we tend to look to in search of our identity or our deliverance. 
But part of that is recognizing and getting really honest about what that is. I don't want to be a church where people just show up, we sing nice songs, we have a nice message, we say nice prayers, we couch it in language that makes us feel so pious. But then when someone who comes in who's completely broken, who's, I mean, fresh, comes in, they say either I can never be like that, or like what I would say, I don't want to be like that. We're a hospital, not a museum. We need to be a place where people are quick to admit about what's actually happening. Because it's only then when we can confess that there's a solution. There's an answer, our Lord Jesus Christ. When we do this, it's useful. What I mean is when we, when we consider what's going on in our heart, it can be useful to take, write in a journal. Take a personal inventory. Write things down. Determine what you're really worshiping. Think about it. Think about it. Too many of us just walk through life. Think. Here, let me help you. Answer the question. I will be okay unless. What's that unless? That's probably something you're worshiping. Consider your biggest fears. What are you really afraid of? What are you using to stave off that threat? That's an idol. What makes you mad? This is a great one. I'm so angry. Why? Because they made me angry. Why? And then when you answer that why, answer the next why. Well, why does that? And then maybe, if you need to, answer that. I've said this. When you get to a place where you start feeling it striking, ooh, like that one hurt. I think that's it. You're close. You're close. And get real. I say things sometimes and I realize that's just, a, it's a sham. I interact with people and I say, I just want what's best for you. I just want what's best for you. Sometimes I just want what's best for me. But if we don't confess these things, if we don't recognize them, we're going to get more of the same. More of the same. And the Lord wants us to reject all of those and look to him. All of that is idolatry. Forego your idols. Remain focused on the Lord. This is not clean up your act. This is not behavior modification. This is confess the ugliness, the darkness, the death that is in your heart. Because there is life and redemption, and joy, and blessing on the other side. There's healing on the other side. When we reject an idol or just change the behavior without turning to God and replacing that idol with him, we're just going to complete the cycle. The whack-a-mole game. Remember? One idol pops up, we whack it real quick, no sooner, the next one comes up. We spend our whole life knocking gophers down when we should be focusing on pulling the plug. Pulling the plug. When we look to the Lord, that plug gets undone. Because of our sin nature, the life really, honestly, is like all about pulling, plugging it in, pulling it out. Plugging it in, pulling it out. The idea is to grow more like Christ and keep that thing unplugged. Thomas Chalmers wrote and delivered a sermon early 19th century, entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Okay? Be happy I don't give you titles like that. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In it, he contends it's impossible for us to reject the love of the world, the idolatry that motivates it for any prolonged period of time. Because our sinful heart is so addicted and dependent on the sin that we commit to find our identity that it's tantamount to 
self-annihilation is the word he uses. Completely reject, destroying of ourselves. Only the love, Chalmers says, and I agree, only the love of something greater is capable of pushing the love of something lesser out of our hearts. Great commandment, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's everything. That is the love that foregoes our idols in our hearts. But we have the choice. We have the choice. Only Christ is great enough, beautiful enough, perfect enough, and I dare say pleasurable enough to force us to reject those things to which we hold. Absolutely fill yourself with Jesus. Become obsessed. Hey, you know what? Jesus freak is like a bad term or whatever. I don't care. I don't care. If I need to be a freak, I'm freak. If I need to be obsessed about Jesus, I will gladly do it. I want a life like that. I want a life like that. Allow yourself to be enamored by his beauty and drunk on his love. I'm down for that. That's what I'm willing to do. I hope you are too. Finally, briefly, four, forget at your peril. Forget at your peril. We need to be reminded of the pain that comes with living for ourselves and rejecting the Lord. God has a pattern of dealing with sin of his people. We've seen this throughout the book of Judges. When we forget God and we look to other saviors in our idolatry, we can expect God to respond. One is he gives us exactly what we want, including the consequences that come with it. But it's a discipline. This discipline that we receive is ultimately an act of love. God is not done with you. He wants you back. And he's waiting. It's not that we reject him, go do our thing, get consequences, come back, and then grovel on the way. It says in the prodigal son, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him. God is waiting and watching and ready to embrace you again at every step. Embrace. You fail again? Immediately. He wants you back. Embrace. There is no, when you clean things up, then you can come to me. He stands ready, pleading for you to come back. Don't forget. So how do we remember? We have to be intentional. We have to remind ourselves. We need to push back against our self-deluding lies. You know them. That you can sin without consequences, you can coast, and an idol will deliver you better than Jesus. So remind ourselves and remind others. Give your testimony. There's power in speaking the truth of what God has done in our lives to others. It actually gives us more freedom. More freedom. This is part of the reason that I get up here and I will say basically anything that is going on in my heart. I know because I see people squirm in their seat like, is, it, he's, is that our pastor? I shouldn't do that. I don't want you to be confused that somehow this office has made me different than anybody else in the world. I don't need that pressure. And it's too dangerous for you to believe otherwise because then what you do what I would do, fake. Fake. Which means we never address the core issue. And we continue going along with our mask on our whole life, listening to nice sermons, singing nice songs, saying nice things. We need to be different if we don't want to have this cycle repeat again. And like I said, this is especially true for our next generation. Kids, especially this generation, can sniff out hypocrisy 
from a hundred miles away because they immediately come at anything they construe as power with suspicion. It's always about answering power, talking back to power. So if you come with any kind of authority, God's authority, there's skepticism immediately. So be real. Be real. Don't put on a front, be who you are, confess what's going on, and answer it with a solution. The Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for us, that our hearts could be different and we could finally break the cycle and not forget. So in conclusion, focus on God, not people. Fight your complacency. Forgo your idols and forget at your peril. Let us not forget. Let us not forget. Sometimes I think people with backgrounds that say, well, I got saved at four years old. My parents grew up in church. I did WANA, youth group, VBS. I married another believer, went to a Christian school, all these things, right? Struggle sometimes because they don't have that what life used to be like. Let me help you with that. Think about what's really happening in your heart now. The things you think about want prioritize love now and recognize that God has delivered you from those things in Jesus Christ. We don't need a story. We just need honesty. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the tools. You have given us the tools. Your spirit, you've given us, Lord, salvation. And from that place of victory, from your victory in our lives, we can be honest about what's going on. Our confessing of what's happening in our heart, Lord, does not mean that we are lost. It does not mean that you don't love us. In fact, when we're saved and we confess, it means that you do love us because that is exactly what you saved us from. Lord, give us the grace to see you for who you really are. Make us people who are absolutely in love with your son, Jesus. Make us parents who are kind and gentle with their kids. Make us grandparents who are enamored and interested and loving to proclaim the message to those who are yet to come, that their lives would be different. May us be citizens who love and are kind because of what you have done in our lives. Lord, give us the grace to forget our idols. Forgo them and not forget the pain of turning back to them. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us and for your salvation that we have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light by your grace and so we can live differently. In Christ's name. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.